Psalm 39, uh, to the chief musician, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways, lest I sin with my tongue, and I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle. While the wicked are before me, I was mute with silence. I held my peace even from good, and my sorrow was stirred up. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue, Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the measure of my days, that I may know how frail I am? Indeed, you have made my days as a handbreadth, and my age is as nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best is but vapor, Selah. Surely every man walks about like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. He heaps up riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the reproach of the foolish. I was mute. I did not open my mouth because it was you who did it. Remove your plague from me. I am consumed by the blow of your hand. When with rebukes you correct man for iniquity, you make his beauty melt away like a moth. Surely every man is vapor. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner, as all my fathers were. Remove your gaze from me, that I may regain strength before I go away and am no more. we got a sermon today coming out of uh, Exodus 10, verses 12 through 20. It's the Plague of Locusts, part 2. So Exodus 10, starting in the 12th verse. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land and all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts, and the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested on all the territory of Egypt. They were very severe. Previously there had been no such locusts as they, nor shall there be such after them, for they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened, and they ate every herb of the land and all of the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin only this once and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. So he went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord turned a very strong west wind, which took the locusts away and blew them into the Red Sea. There remained not one in one locust in all the territory of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the children of Israel go. In 2013... The most recent plague of locusts filled the Middle East. It wasn't by any stretch comparable with the uh, plague described in the Bible or some other plagues which have come about in recorded history. But photos from it still showed an impressive amount of locusts suddenly showing up in various places. Over Egypt, they estimated an infestation of about 30 million locusts. And just before the Passover in Israel, a portion of them flew over the border and covered 2,000 acres in the south of the land. With modern pest control, the infestation quickly died out, but it made for great news stories, especially because it occurred right around the time of the Passover. In our ongoing look into the plagues on Egypt, we're also getting closer and closer to the first Passover. 
Seven plagues are behind us, and the eighth is just about to start. And despite it being the greatest plague of locusts ever to come upon the earth, it will still not have a permanent effect on Pharaoh. When reading Exodus, he sounds like a nut job because he keeps refusing to yield to the Lord. When you read it, it almost sounds impossible that anybody could act this way. And yet, Pharaoh is simply a picture of any one of us or any group of people at any given time. We can laugh at the stupid man because we see the whole story in front of us. But he was really no different than Israel. They got many of the same punishments as Pharaoh did, and they still wouldn't yield to the Lord. And really, how much worse was this when they were the Lord's people and they had the Lord's word right there in front of them? Just imagine that. Our text verse today comes from Amos 4. It's the ninth verse. I blasted you with blight and mildew. When your gardens increased, your vineyards, your fig trees, and your olive trees, the locust devoured them. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. The words of Amos go on citing the measures the Lord took to get Israel to repent. And yet time and time again, they wouldn't listen. Eventually, the sobering words of the Lord show the utter frustration he had at their continued rebellion as he cried out these words, Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. I can't think of a more terrifying thought, and yet every person on earth will eventually hear those same words, Prepare to meet your God. Some will be ready, and some won't. But we will all be meeting our God someday. The terms on which we meet him depend solely on the relationship with Jesus Christ. For Pharaoh, the Lord will continue to demonstrate that he alone is God and that the gods of Egypt are merely false gods. And for us, he has proven this so powerfully through his word that we are simply left without excuse if we ignore it and if we turn our hearts away from him. And so let's not do that. Instead, let's pay heed to his superior word. And in order to do that, we need to know it. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have only two thoughts for you today. The first is, the east wind brings destruction. It's verses 12 through 15. Verse 12, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts. In the previous verse from last week, Moses and Aaron had suffered the disgrace of being driven right out of Pharaoh's presence. Because they are the representatives of the Lord, it was an act against him. This is no different than treating an ambassador from another country with disgrace. The treatment of the representative reflects upon the people or the authority that that person represents. To expel an ambassador is thus intended as an action against the one to whom the ambassador represents. To expel Moses and Aaron can only be viewed as a defiant action against the Lord himself. Therefore, the Lord will now act once again, multiplying his wonders in the land of Egypt. And so he instructs Moses to stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts. Mentally, we can picture what this would entail. Moses would raise his arms to the heavens and he would draw them out in all the directions, all four quarters, as if beckoning the great army, which God had prepared for this moment. It will be, as Pharaoh was already told, locusts. To repeat, so you remember, locusts are seen throughout the entire Old Testament, and especially they are highlighted in the book of Joel. Their Hebrew name is Arbe, but the root of Arbe is what gives substance to their name. It is Rava, and it means to multiply. Thus, the very name locust implies astonishing numbers. As we saw in Joel, the Lord calls them my great army. 
The great army of the Lord will now rain destruction down from the heavens. Their devastating power will come heavily upon the land with the sole purpose of consuming every single thing that they encounter. Verse 12 continues, that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land. Last week in verse 5, it mentioned that the locusts shall eat the residue of what is left. And it specifically mentioned the trees. Now it uses a general word to describe every green thing. The word is a sev. It is the same word which was used during the plague of hail. There it said this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man, on beast, and on every herb, a sev of the field, throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire darted to the ground. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire mingled with the hail, so very heavy that there was none like it in all of the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt and all that was in the field, both man and beast. And the hail struck every herb, again, the word esev, of the field and broke every tree of the field. The plague of hail wrought its damage on the trees and the herbs, and now these words are used again to show that although the hail did great damage, some plants survived. These will now be consumed by the grand plague of locusts. The Hebrew word for come upon here is the word Allah. It gives the general idea of rising like clouds, as if they're carried in by the wind. From a distance, one would only see a black cloud coming upon the land. If you didn't know what it was, it would be a most terrifying sensation. One might think that some type of supernatural hostile force was coming upon the land, or that the earth itself was rising like a black dust cloud to consume whatever was in its path. Even someone who knew what the cloud was would surely feel panic in the moments before it arrived. The cloud would come, and the damage would be immense. Verse 12 goes on, all that the hail has left. The stretching out of the hands over Egypt was symbolic. It meant that there would be complete coverage of the land, just as there was with the hail. Whatever was spared in that plague will again be susceptible to further destruction. But because there was so much damage already from the hail, the locusts would have less to eat than they otherwise would have. And because of this, what was left would be even at greater risk than by a normal plague. And Pharaoh's already been told that this will be greater than any other known plague up to that point. He should have heeded, but the hardened heart is like an iron wall. And Pharaoh's heart was very, very hard. Pharaoh's heart is hard and his mind is fixed. And many pains he has brought upon himself in his land. First he relents and then he hardens. His actions are mixed. And so again and again he receives a punishing hand. First it was blood, then frogs, and then lice. Those didn't work nor did the flies or the death of the livestock. And the boils and the hail could not have been nice. Now maybe the locusts will his heart finally unlock. They are coming and they will cover the land. What hasn't been destroyed will now be chewed away. Another plague from God's powerful hand. Another plague which for an end Pharaoh will pray. Verse 13. So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt. As instructed, so Moses does. Like the plague of hail, Aaron isn't mentioned. Instead, it says that Moses took the action. There has been a marked shift in the initiation of the plagues, at least from how the Bible records them. Moses, whose name means he who draws out, will once again draw out a terrifying plague upon the land of Egypt. Verse 13 going on, And the Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. 
Moses is very careful to describe the details of how the Lord worked this great miracle. Because locust plagues are not entirely uncommon, this one is natural enough to be dismissed as chance by a hardened heart. But it is supernatural enough to be seen as a true miracle by one who understands God's foreknowledge of such events when they occur. The true miracle is just that. The event was foretold by the Lord, and it will come about exactly when he directs it to occur. The pulpit commentary notes that locusts generally come with a wind and indeed cannot fly far without one. An east wind would, in this case, have been brought, would have brought them from northern Arabia, which is a tract where they often are bred in large numbers. Dinan, the French traveler, notes that an enormous cloud of locusts which invaded Egypt during his day came from the east. Because the verse tells us that the wind blew all that day and all that night, it's telling us that the locusts could have easily been carried a very, very great distance without any trouble at all. There was a devastating date with destiny for these destructive demons, and there was no delay in their duly timed arrival. Verse 13 continues, When it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. While speaking to Pharaoh through Moses, the Lord said this in verse 4, If you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. Exactly as prophesied, so it occurred. Only a truly hardened heart could continue to fight against such precise warnings with such devastating results. Before we go on, I want to read you this entire verse again, and then I want to read you Exodus 14, verse 21. There you're going to see similarities in how God performs two different miracles. So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And then from Exodus 14, 21, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. Both times an east wind is used to produce the miracle of God. God's use of the east wind in the first instance was to destroy Pharaoh's land of Egypt while continuing his work towards securing Israel's freedom. His use of the same east wind later was to actually secure that freedom for Israel and at the same time to destroy Pharaoh and his Egyptian army. There are both similarities and there are contrasts, but in both, the glory of the Lord is revealed. Verse 14, And the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested on all the territory of Egypt. The same word for territory, which was used to describe the coverage of the plague of frogs, is used again here. It is the word gebul, and it means borders. In other words, the land within the borders is where the infestation is. Wherever anything green was within the borders, it will be plagued by locusts. After their long flight, they are said to have rested there. This is the same word for rest, which was used, for example, at the flood of Noah. As the flood ended, the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. In the same way, the locusts have been on a long, divinely directed journey, and they too now will rest and reinvigorate themselves. Verse 14 goes on. They were very severe. Previously, there had been no such locusts as they. In verse 6, Moses told Pharaoh this. He said, they shall fill your houses, the houses of all your servants and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither your fathers nor your father's fathers have seen since the day that they were on this earth until this day. Exactly as it had been prophesied, so it came about. In fact, the word used to describe the coming of the locusts is chaved me'od. It means very heavy. 
The sheer numbers of them would have been such a weight and a burden on the already devastated land that it would simply groan from the arrival of this new plague. But there's more than just a plague which has never been seen before. The Bible describes it as a plague which is unique for all time. Verse 14 going on, nor shall there be such after them. There is no reason to not take these words literally. The Bible says that this plague was immense and that there would never be such a plague like it again. It doesn't specify only Egypt. It simply says that this is the big one for all time. In Joel 2 verse 2, similar words are used, but the locusts referred to in Joel are metaphorically being used of men. The army of the end times prophesied in Joel will be comparable to the locusts of the book of Exodus. As often happens in the Bible, things from nature are used both literally and in metaphor for us to see how the Lord works his hand in redemptive history. As this is the greatest plague of locusts ever, then in order to understand how immense it must have been, we can read Benson's comments on other plagues which have been documented in history. Here's what Benson says. In the year 1527, great troops of locusts were brought by a strong wind out of Turkey into Poland, which country they wasted. And in 1536, a wind from the Euxine Sea brought such vast numbers into Podolia that for many miles round, they destroyed everything. And in the year 1650, a cloud of locusts was seen to enter Russia in three different places, and from thence they spread themselves over Poland and Lithuania in such astonishing multitudes that the air was darkened and the earth covered with their numbers. In some places they were seen lying dead, heaped up upon each other to the depth of four feet. In others, they covered the surface like a black cloth. The trees bent with their weight, and the damage which the country sustained exceeded computation. If this plague upon Egypt truly is the greatest ever seen, imagine the horror of the devastation which must have been wrought. Verse 15, for they covered the face of the whole earth so that the land was darkened. This verse could actually mean one of two things. It either means that as they arrived, the entire earth was darkened by them blotting out the sun, or that when they arrived, the entire earth was covered with them. Actually, though, both would be the case. Albert Barnes notes one example from history of the first case. He says, travelers mention a cloud of locusts extending over 500 miles and so compact while on the wing that it completely hid the sun. This passage describes a swarm unprecedented in extent. And then Charles Ellicott notes one example from history of the second. The steps were literally covered, he says, with the bodies of these insects. The whole face of nature seemed to be concealed as by a living veil. The locusts over Egypt were numerous enough to both blacken out the sun as they flew, and they were numerous enough to cover the land completely as they rested. And the word used for cover in the Hebrew shows that either is possible. When the flood of Noah covered the earth, the same word was used, covering the ground or the earth. Likewise, in the 147th Psalm, the word is used to indicate clouds which cover the earth. Therefore, this is certainly speaking of the entire cycle of the visit of these locusts over and on the land. Verse 15 going on, and they ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. The pulpit commentary notes that if these terrible columns stop half an hour on a spot for everything growing on it, vines, olive trees, and corn to be entirely destroyed, after they have passed, nothing remains but the large branches and the roots which, being underground, have escaped their veracity. 
The locusts in Egypt were certainly famished from the long flight, and they were thus ready to devour everything that they came to. I don't suppose that unless we actually saw such a sight that we could even imagine the devastation that must have been wrought upon Egypt. And as we think about it, we have to keep reminding ourselves that one, this was purposed by God to show that his power over Egypt and Egypt's false gods was absolute. Two, that it was his intent through this to secure the release of his people. And three, that it could have been avoided if Pharaoh simply yielded to the demand of the Lord. And for each of these points, we can look to both parallels in the end times and what will occur there, and also to individual instances in every life on earth. God shows his power for exactly the same reasons in both of these. What is amazing is that even though this is true and we have the written record of it from the past, most people in the world fail to see it in themselves and the world of the end times will collectively fail to see it as they head off to their own doom. Verse 15 continues, So there remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants of the field throughout all of the land of Egypt. Verse 15 shows the victory of the Lord over the false Egyptian gods, Nut, the sky goddess, and Osiris, god of crops and fertility. Nut was unable to stop the advance of the Lord's locust army, and Osiris was unable to save the crops and the fruit trees from their complete devastation. In chapter 9, the Lord said, At this time... I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. The Lord spoke and he continues to demonstrate that his spoken word is true. How can anyone be as obstinate as Pharaoh? Who could continue to harm himself and not relent? One plague after another and he still won't let Israel go. Will he continue until the Lord's arrows are all spent? His quiver is full and it will never grow empty. And it is only we who suffer as we fight against his word. But he is gracious and forgives, hoping we will see, and acknowledge that he alone is the Lord. Let us not be like Pharaoh and continue to fight, but instead let us respond to his loving call. Take advantage of the day, for soon comes the night. Now is the time, and in heaven there is room for us all. Our second thought today, the west wind brings relief. It's verses 16 through 20. Verse 16, then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste. Something new is added into this call. It reads that he called for them in haste. The word is mahar, and it means hurriedly or quickly. Unlike the previous summons, there is a sense of true urgency in the action. It is as if he has finally been terrified enough to simply rush towards relief. At this point, he could only imagine what it looked like under the covering of the locusts. But he probably figured at this point that there was something left to save. Thus, he sends for them hurriedly. He really has no idea how bad it probably is. This is important to consider later when he hardens himself again. No matter what, though, he now calls for Moses and Aaron. The Geneva Bible insightfully and correctly states, The wicked in their misery seek God's ministers for help, even though they hate and detest them. Maybe this has happened to you as well, but I cannot tell you how many times Someone has emailed me with a request for prayers or for advice who are either unsaved or believers that are not living for the Lord. Sure enough, when things go bad, the very first thing they do is email or call looking for me to intercede to God for them or to give them advice as to what they should do. And I'm sure it's happened to many of you. Very few, if any, ever accept the advice and act on it. And always they want to go back and do exactly what they were doing before the troubles came. Literally, I don't think I could count the number of times I've seen this happen. 
And frequently it will happen multiple times with the same person. Jesus says that a dog will return to its own vomit and that a sow will return to her wallow after having been washed. I've had both dogs and pigs, and I can say that is absolutely true. And I've seen it in humans enough to know that his words are vindicated in the people that he has created. Verse 16 continues and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. His words here improve on what he said during the plague of hail. There he said, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous and my people and I are wicked. Now he doesn't try to blame anyone else. He is the leader and the responsibility for the sin is his alone. He also notes the double fault. He sinned against the Lord by not obeying what he was commanded to do, even after having been given sure proofs of the Lord's deity. And then he sinned against Moses and Aaron for first promising action and then refusing to withhold his or hold to his spoken word. And this is now the fourth time that he's asked for a plague to be ended. But the Lord who reads the heart and who knows the man already knows what the outcome will be once this plague is removed as well. His words here are almost identical to those of the words that are used in the parable of the lost son, which is found in Luke 15. So I want you to look at them side by side. I have sinned against the Lord, your God, and against you, says Pharaoh. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. That's the parable of the lost son. In both accounts, mercy is granted, but we can only hope that the end will turn out better for the lost son than what we eventually will see in Pharaoh. The Lord is gracious and the Lord is merciful, but he is not a cosmic pushover. All wrongs must be judged and a persistent, belligerent attitude towards him will eventually end very badly for the offender. Verse 17, now therefore, please forgive my sin only this once. This is now the fourth time that Pharaoh has asked for Moses to intercede to the Lord for him. So far, he has yielded and asked for relief from the frogs, the flies, and the hail. Now the locusts have brought him to this point once again. In his words, he says, forgive my sin only this once. Sure enough, he's using his only free pass and he knows it. With just two plagues to go, he will never be recorded as asking for the removal of a plague again. Verse 17 going on and entreat the Lord your God. Pharaoh again acknowledges the name Jehovah and that he is their God. And not only that, he acknowledges that he has the power to remove what has come upon him. In other words, he knows that the Lord is the initiator of the action and that he is also the one who has the power to end that action. In this is the implied understanding that the Lord has once again defeated the false gods of Egypt. What is beyond odd is how he continuously vacillates between accepting this knowledge and then fighting against it. But it is, as I mentioned earlier, not that uncommon among people. They cry out for relief with the understanding that a higher power does have the ability to fix their problem, and then they completely walk away from him when that problem is solved. I see it so often that as I was typing this sermon, name after name and face after face came to mind of people who have done exactly as Pharaoh is shown to do right here. Verse 17 continues, that he may take away from me this death only. This death, or literally in Hebrew, the death, is a way of personifying the tragedy which surrounds him. The fruit trees are being destroyed, the crops are being destroyed, and in turn, the livelihoods and maybe even the lives of his people are being destroyed. Death is permeating the land as a live force, which if not stopped will eventually consume all life, either directly or indirectly. He feels certain that if this death is removed, then life will be restored. And if it is not, 
all will be lost. Verse 18, so he went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. We should note here that no promise of relief is given. Pharaoh simply asked for the ending of the plague and admitted his sin. But he never said to Moses that he would let Israel go. It may be that he was hoping Moses would simply believe that this was implied, or it may be that he was so overwrought with the locusts that he just never brought it up. Either way, Moses never asks for release, knowing that such a promise was not to be trusted anyway. He knew that the Lord had a plan and that the Lord would direct his steps through the execution of it, and so there was no need to belabor the point. He therefore magnanimously turned away without any rebuke or any accusation and complied with Pharaoh's request. As John Lang says about this, it is first an expression of divine forbearance, secondly, the attestation of the miracle displayed in the plague of locusts. The Lord, again, is the great victor, and he is also known to be the merciful pardoner of sin. As his representative, Moses simply went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord, and the Lord graciously responded, verse 19, and the Lord turned a very strong west wind. By the direction of the Lord, an east wind blew them into Egypt, and by the direction of the Lord, they are blown back out of Egypt. The word translated here as west wind is ruach yam, literally a wind of the sea. A very strong sea breeze came up as directed by the Lord in order to effect his purposes. Verse 19 continues, which took the locusts away and blew them into the Red Sea. The wind was so strong that the locusts were literally licked up into it. With their bellies full and with nothing more to be eaten, they responded to the divine call and the natural forces of the winds, and they blew towards the Red Sea. And the Hebrew word here for blue is taka. It's a word which indicates a resounding thrust like a, a sword or a noise such as a clap, a blow, or a blast. It is what a trumpeter would do when blowing out a signal on a trumpet. It is used to describe the noise of the trumpeters as they circled Jericho. In this, the symbolism is marvelous. Just as armies are called to formation and led in or out of battle by such a blast, the Lord's armies, his locusts' armies, are also directed toward the ending of their mission with such a blast. And their final destination is the Red Sea. Without a continued wind, the locusts will eventually drop right into the sea, exactly as the Bible describes here. A man named Pallas notes that in 1799, great numbers of them were carried from the Crimea by northerly winds into the sea where they perished and were afterwards washed on onto the shore in heaps. One mighty army has now met its end in the Red Sea. It is almost a foreshadowing of the destruction of Pharaoh's own armies in that same place in the not-too-distant future. The patterns are rich and they are exciting. Verse 19 continues, there remained not one locust in all of the territory of Egypt. As unlikely as this may seem, it is known that locusts travel in ranks. And with this, combined with the immense west wind, the locusts would have risen together and departed to wherever they were being led. Confirming this, Solomon bears out the orderly nature of the locust in Proverbs chapter 30, where he says, the locusts have no king, yet they all advance in ranks. There's no reason to assume that this is unreasonable. And we finish today with verse 20. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go. The Hebrew reads, and hardened the Lord the heart of Pharaoh. Again, as always, this needs to be evaluated from the surrounding narrative. One might assume that the Lord has actively hardened his heart, but there are a few things to consider. The first is that Pharaoh would now at this point, and only now, see that it was too late for the vegetation. 
By the time the call was made, everything was gone. Before that, though, everything was covered with locusts. There would be no way to tell the extent of the damage until the locusts were gone. Now that there were no more trees or crops or grass, Pharaoh would consider that there was absolutely nothing further that could be taken from him. And so it didn't matter if he kept the Israelites. He had nothing to lose. Thus, the action is active by Pharaoh, and it is passive by the Lord. Secondly, as we saw, there is no promise of release. Therefore, he couldn't be considered as a liar once again when he said nothing one way or another. Again, it is an active hardening of Pharaoh and a passive one by the Lord. And third, the very words from Pharaoh's mouth acknowledge that the plague of locusts was from the Lord. It is he who is now rejecting what he already knows to do. This is exactly the same as those who would email or ask for prayers or advice from the Bible and then turn around and ignore one or both, even after things have been resolved. It isn't the Lord who turns away from that person. It is they who turn. The Bible says that exactly the opposite is the truth. We find his words in 2 Peter chapter 3, the ninth verse. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, that not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's what he's been doing with Pharaoh, hoping that he'll repent, hoping that he'll repent. Even though he's hardening impassively, it is Pharaoh who is actively turning away from the Lord. It's impossible that the Lord would contradict himself, even for a stubborn fool like Pharaoh. And so the hardening is an active one by him in response to the Lord's promptings just as it is with all those who act in the same manner around us that we see day after day after day. Even though the Lord knows how Pharaoh or any other person will respond, it does not mean that he is to blame for that response. It is up to us to open our hearts to him and to be reconciled to him. He has already made the offer in the sending of his son. What more does he need to do? What he expects is that we now respond to that offer and receive that gift. If you've never taken this most important, most important of steps, please let me tell you what you need to know. God sent his son into the world to take the punishment that you and I deserve. You say, I don't deserve any punishment. Well, the Bible teaches something called sin. Adam fell. He rebelled against God. And from that point, all people have inherited Adam's sin. It's called original sin. It's called inherited sin. It travels through the father and it travels to every single person because all women and all men are born of a father. But God did something way back at the time of Abraham. He said, you know what? I'm going to give you a picture of something I'm going to do that you'll be able to grasp. He says, I'm giving you a covenant called circumcision. Circumcision is cutting away the male member, right? It's a picture of Jesus Christ coming because sin travels through the man. Jesus Christ was born into the stream of humanity without a human father. Thus, the sin is cut. He was born of a woman and born of the Holy Spirit. Thus, he is fully God and he is fully man, but without Adam's inherited sin. The sin is done. And then he lived the law which he was born under, which you and I could never live. Thou shalt not lie. Tell me anybody here has not lied. If you say that you haven't, I'm going to have to call you a liar. You may not remember it, but the fact is that you have done it. And that's in us. It's a part of who we are. And it eternally separates us from God because he's infinitely holy and infinitely righteous and we are finite and we're fallen. And so Jesus Christ came to bridge that gap between the two of us. Born without sin, lived under the law without sin, and then he did something which is provided for under that same law. A substitution can die in the place one for another. 
and he gave his life up in exchange for my sin and for your sin. And he says, if you will just believe in that act, I will take away your sin guilt. And to prove it, what did he do? He popped out of the grave three days later. I have no sin of my own. The wages of sin is death. And it was impossible for him to stay in the grave because he had no sin of, sins of his own. He proved that he is the God-man that could do what he said he would do. And all he asks is for faith. All who believe in me will be reconciled to my Father through me. That's all he wants for us. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Please, if you've never done that, do that today. All right? That is my plea for you. And then come up here and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us, saying that I have my sin nailed to the cross, and I am proclaiming that until he comes again for me. Great stuff from a wonderful creator. Our closing verse today comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 7. It is the 8th verse. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Well, I guarantee you, Pharaoh agreed with the first one. The end of the thing is better than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. He still hasn't learned that lesson. Next week is Exodus 10. It's verses 21 through 29. Egypt will be in quite a mess. Yes, it's the plague of darkness. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right? I have a poem for you today. It's called The Plague of Locusts. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts in this be deft that they may come upon Egypt the land and eat every herb of the land, all that the hail is left. So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt and the Lord brought an east wind on the land it was focused. All that day and all that night the wind whipped. When it was morning, the east wind brought the locust. And the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt that day and rested on all the territory of Egypt. They were very severe. Previously there had been no such locusts as they, nor shall there be such after them in days distant or near. For they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened, of light it was bereft. Then they ate every herb of the land, bringing terrible dearth, and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants of the field. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the locusts continued, refusing to yield. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron, hastily it's true, and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin. I'm such a clod. Only this once is my plea. And entreat the Lord your God that he may take away this death only from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord responded to Moses' entreated word. And the Lord turned a very strong west wind that day, which took all of the locusts away and blew them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in all of Egypt's territory but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go, just as the Lord knew from the very start, a process which you and I very well know. It is our hearts which condemn us when we fail to heed, when we hear but ignore God's precious word. But if we at some point acknowledge our great need, that is when we will finally bow to the Lord. And he is merciful and will freely forgive. When we call on Jesus, he will save our wayward soul. At that moment when we truly do begin to live, and we are inscribed on heaven's glorious scroll, thanking you, Jesus, for your gracious saving hand and opening, opening us to us wide the gates of your heavenly land. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, 
Thank you so much for the wonderful blessing that you've uh, just lavished upon us in these words, being able to see our own human nature and then to be able to correct that based on a proper evaluation of these words. Help us not to be stubborn. Help us not to fight against you. Help us to recognize your hand in all things that occur. Everything is so perfect. The bumblebees pollinate the flowers and the flowers turn into fruit. Everything happens because you've ordained it so perfectly. And yet we just turn away and we credit it to something like evolution when in fact it's a marvelous display of your wisdom and your care and your love for us. Thank you for how a man is intended for a woman and there's a bond which can be made between the two of them that can last for a lifetime. Thank you for the children that come from that union and that just bless our hearts and at the same time grieve us so that we learn more lessons, lessons that will help us to instruct others in the days ahead. Thank you for this superior word which is so tender and so precious and so glorious and it teaches us every single life lesson we need to know. We don't need to hear sermons about how to improve our life. We need to know your Bible and then we will improve our life. Thank you for that word. Thank you for everything you've done for us. We ask that you continue to bless each person here in the week ahead. Pray for Pat and our broken arm and for those who are traveling and those who are uh, currently restricted to their home or to uh, a medical facility. We pray for each of these people. Pray for continued blessing for each one of them. And we pray for Sarah, her birthday coming up this week and a whole life ahead of her. Lord, we ask that you keep her safe at college and keep her away from the liberal ideologies which could turn her heart away from you. Instead, help her to focus on your word and to open that Bible and to read it daily and to know that you're there with her through the good times and the bad. Thank you for all these things. We petition you, we exalt you, we praise you, and we love you. We do so because of what you did through Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen. We received the uh, instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible, from the hand of Paul. I add in a couple things, which are blessings that would have been spoken by the Lord on that night. But other than that, we stick right to the Bible. And... uh, These are the words that Paul gave us. For I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and he would have given thanks over it. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed it as well. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body.
the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, Thank you for this table. Thank you for the, the great accomplishment that Jesus Christ wrought on our behalf, giving his life on the cross of Calvary so that we, fallen people like us, could be reconciled to you through his shed blood. Help us to tell others this message, to get the word out, and to tell them that you are a holy God and that you demand holiness in your people. Help us to live that life that we should live and to adhere to your word. The further we get away from your word, the further we are away from Jesus Christ. So help us to keep our nose in it every single day, to pursue it and to adhere to it and to cherish it because it is the greatest gift that we could ever be given until he comes again and we see his face personally. We love you. We love you. You're so great to us. Thank you for all you've done for us. We exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.